The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. This thing you work against, Akabam, what profit do you hope from it? We work it for Faisal of Mecca. The Harith do not work for profit. Well, if it isn't a man to be a servant, Sharif Ali, he could find worse masters than Faisal. But I, I cannot serve. You permit the Turks to stay in Aqaba? Yes, it is my pleasure. We do not work this thing for Faisal. No. For the English, then? For the Arabs. The Arabs. The Hawitat Ajili, Rala, Beni Sakha, these I know. I have even heard of the Harith. But the Arabs? What tribe is that? <laughs> They're a tribe of slaves. They serve the Turks. Well, they are nothing to me. My tribe is the Hawitat. Work only for profit. To work at Aldo's pleasure. And Aldo's pleasure is to serve the Turks. Serve? I serve? It is the servant who takes money. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, October 6, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to our show today, where once again we are joined by our regular guest, Western University's Associate Professor of Political Science, Salim Mansour. Welcome again, Salim. I think we're going to have a hot show today. What do you think? Thank you. Thank <laughs> you for calling me in. Now, Salim calls the situation in Syria a dire one, but thinks that Donald Trump may be the solution. We'll get into that, both of those topics, but don't forget you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, all of our past broadcasts of Just Right Media. Salim, you told us that there was a serious and dire situation going on in Syria. And I just wondered if many people even understand what the situation is in Syria. I have here uh, from, the, from the London Free Press Post Media a quick summary of something that Wynne Dyer wrote on, on Syria. And I wondered it would it'd be a great starting point to explain what is going on there. But he gave a very interesting summary of what's going on in Syria. And I was wondering if this paints a proper picture in your eyes, and if not, if it doesn't, tell us where you differ. And here's what he said, quote, In Syria, there are profound religious and ethnic cleavages, and it's not two sides fighting, but five. The government, two mutually hostile organizations of Islamist jihadi, so-called Islamic State and the Nusra Front, now calling itself the Army of Victory, remaining Arab insurgents of the, quote, Free Syrian Army, end quote, and the Syrian Kurds. Each has fought the other at some point. Not one has a reasonable prospect of establishing control over the whole country, but none has been driven out by military defeat either. 
There are those who see increasing engagement of the U.S. and Russia in the Syrian war as a hopeful development, since if these two superpowers can agree, maybe they could impose some kind of peace, end quote. Does that sound like an accurate summary of uh, the big picture in Syria? In, in a way, yes, it does, because uh, the Syrian conflict is more and more looking like a dog's breakfast. The Syrian conflict over the past couple of years has transformed into a conflict of all of the Middle East, and Syria has become the theater of that conflict. So there are various different elements. There is for the Syrian regime itself, that is the Syrian state, fighting for its own survival under the president, Bashar Assad, who represents a minority community within Syria, a sectarian minority com community. He's an Alawi Shiite, so that raises a whole set of problems. Then there is uh, the group within Syria uh, that represents, in some way, the largest sectarian group, which is the Sunni Muslim, and they are fighting the regime to establish the majority or majoritarian uh, a state, which is Sunni Islam state, and they're being supported by Saudi Arabia, they're being supported by the United States. Uh, so these are the outside forces that are supporting them. Then on the other side are the various fragmented groups. Uh, there is the Kurd that you have mentioned, who are fighting for their own survival, their own interests as a potential state in being. Uh, the Kurds are not Arabs, they are a clearly identified nationalist group. Then there are the Shia, which are being supported, both the regime itself and the Shia Muslim that is being supported by Iran. And Iran is one of the major players now in the Middle East. So it's a proxy war between Iran, the Shia Republic on one side, or the Khomeini Republic on one side, and Saudi Arabia on the other side, which is a, a Wahhabi state, but it's supporting the Sunni Muslim. And then behind all of that is, of course, um, the support of Russia and China for the regime and the Americans in opposition to that, which is the Americans are supporting the Saudi coalition. The, this, which is kind of odd to me. You said the Kurds are not Arab. What does that mean when you say they're nationalistic rather than being Arab? You mean they're... Well, I mean, if you're going to define a people according to their ethnic identity, the Kurds are not Arabs. Okay. The Kurds are Kurds. So Arab is ethnic identity, not geographic. Exactly. Arabs are a people defined by either linguistically, that is, that is the Arabic speaking, mm -hmm. the mother tongue is Arab, Arabic, or if you want to say it in the religious sense, uh, the, the majority of Arabs are Sunni Muslim, which is the dominant sect in Islam. But yeah, sect in, in linguistically they're Arabs, mm -hmm. that is their ethnic identity is Arab, but then it is broken up into religious groups. Now, now uh, about a year ago, you wrote a, a, a huge piece in the National Post, right. speaking of Syria particularly, and this was before the Canadian election had, had come to pass, right. and you were talking about the fact that the, really Syria is a bit of a myth in terms of how people view it as it is a nation today by its outline. How, how does that work, and how does that affect the conflict that we're seeing today? Well, all of the states in this region, uh, Bob, Let's call it the Levant in, in that sense. That is the region between the eastern Mediterranean and the two major rivers, the Euphrates and the Tigris, which was ancient Mesopotamia, mm -hmm. which is now modern-day Iraq. And then 
from the borders of Turkey to the Persian Gulf, this mass region, was before World War I part of the Ottoman Empire. A mm-hmm. hundred years ago, next year or two years from now, when the World War I ended in 1918, the Ottoman Empire was defeated and the areas that the Ottomans had control, which is this area, the Levant, came into the possession of the Allied powers, Britain and France. And Britain and France then subsequently set upon mapping this area. And so all the states in this area, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, the Palestine Mandate, which then eventually became Israel and the West Bank, Jordan, Kuwait, including Saudi Arabia, all of these areas, the countries that we have now, or states, did not exist and came into being after 1918 mm-hmm. under the aegis of the British and the French. So in, in that sense, Syria is a modern state, but with an ancient history. It sounds a lot like the African situation, when the colonies were divided up, but not according to the way that the people in Africa were living and the way the tribes were divided. And all, all of a sudden, a, f- a foreign interest comes in and divides totally different um, borders, putting, keeping people apart who maybe should be together and putting people together who should, who should maybe be apart. Am I missing the point? In- no, no, that's, that's a good analogy. I mean, the, the mapping of Africa took place in the 1880s, if I remember correctly, 1885. That was the European settlement, and Africa was divided up by the interests of Europe. France, Britain, Germany, Belgium, Spain, Portugal. This was the age of the colonial empires, Mm. you know, the age that began after the end of the Napoleonic Wars as Europe spread out and engaged in making its overseas empires. So Africa was the continent that was divided up, except for North Africa, which was pretty much under the control of the Ottoman Empire. Later on, the French took over step by step Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco. The Italians took over Libya, and the British had a presence in Egypt. And then the rest of Africa was mapped up. And you're absolutely right. It was the interests of the European capitals that decided the shape of the African states that emerged some 70, 80 years later after the end of the Second World War. And the logic of the map has no logic to the ethnic natural ethnic boundaries of the African tribes. One might say similarly, the same situation happened after World War I. It was the logic of the British and the French that mapped the area in this region where now we have Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, Jordan. Well, clearly they were mapping it according to their interests, not exactly, to the interests to of the local, local people who live there. W- would it be safe to say that that might in and of itself almost be 90% of the cause of all the conflicts in the area? Or is that just a side issue? Well, I mean, uh, you mean the, you, you, Bob, you're touching upon very large historical oh, I realize. I just... issues. The, the states that were constructed, in this case the Middle Eastern states were constructed, then became the uh, mechanism by which the people within those states would be educated, if I may use the word broadly, educated, to become Syrian, 
to become Iraqi, to become Jordanian, to I become see. Saudi. Either a state is, cre is constructed and imposes its identity upon the people, or the people win and construct a state and then, you know, naturally give it an identity. I mean, here mm -hmm. you have two different phenomena. You have the American Revolution, which was from the ground up, 13 colonies, and they came together and they defined themselves as Americans. They didn't right. define themselves as Dutch and Germans and, you know, Irish and Scots and wherever they came from, the Pilgrim Fathers. They defined themselves as Americans. They wrote a constitution, and America became a melting pot. And so today... Wherever people come from, it doesn't matter. If you set aside the argument of multiculturalism, whether you're a Tibetan, whether you're Vietnamese, you're a Chinese, you're an Indian, you're a Turk, whoever, Eskimo, you arrive in America, you swear on the American flag and the American constitution, and you become an American, mm -hmm. right? So it's a ground up. Whereas, take the case of, uh, say, the creation in Europe leading up to the French Revolution, France constructed itself, the royal family, the kings of France, they construct the boundaries of France. And then they impose upon the people over there, the Normans, the Brittany, mm -hmm. the, all the other various people, the identity of being French by imposing upon them and educating them in the language of France, in the history of France that is constructed. Same thing with the Italians, same thing with Germany. Same, same, same thing with Quebec. <laughs> if I want to talk about you imposing so. French. So there are, you know. two, there are two ways in, yeah. in sociology one can discuss this. One is state-nation. The state it comes about and the state creates a nation mm -hmm. uh, and the identity of a nation or nation-state. The Japanese is a nation-state. Japan is an insular island. The Japanese are a culture, they understand their history very much, their language, their past, and it emerges as a nation-state, you know. Mm -hmm. India is a classic example of a state-nation. The Indians were divided into multiple linguistic groups and ethnic groups. Each group is bigger than Europe because India is it's called a subcontinent. It's mm -hmm. a continent of a country, 1.2 billion people. But when the British ruled India, they imposed upon India a boundary, an idea called India. And as they transferred power to the Indians in 1947, that structure that the British had created, you know, uh, which became the Indian state, then educated the people to consider themselves as Indians. I am an Indian. I speak in English language. This is mm. not my mother tongue, but I dream in, sh in English language. You know, I, I, I dream about Shakespeare, <laughs> right? But what has that got to do with my ethnic identity? Nothing, you see. So this is a part of the education process. So if you go back to the Middle East, <coughs> Syria, that is what you're beginning with, Syria was a hotspot of people, or the Levant was a hotspot of people. They were Arab. They spoke Arabic language. But there was all sorts of division, the fundamental division being tribal divisions right. and the sectarian divisions, you know. So there was no idea that they are a state. They had been ruled by empires. The Ottoman Empire was the last great empire that ruled them. Before that, there were other empires. The Roman Empire, this was the Byzantium Empire, the sure. Persian Empire, you know. And great monarchs ruled them and the people lived with their loyalty to the empire. So you come now, this in this large history of boiling it down, the last hundred years, and Europe maps it. And now suddenly, 
there is a country called Syria with a Syrian flag and a Syrian capital and an Iraqi capital and an Iraqi flag, and the people are being now told that you have to be Syrian and you have to be Iraqi and you have to be Jordanian. There's a classic scene in Lawrence of Arabia, mm -hmm. if you all recall, Peter O'Toole, who plays Lawrence, is facing this Arab tribal leader played by Anthony Quinn. And Lawrence is trying to persuade him, stop your internal tribal fighting, you know. We are engaged in this great struggle, the Arab revolt against the Turks, you know. And why are you getting involved in all this petty squabble? And this tribal chief, played by Anthony Quinn, remarks, who are the Arabs? Yeah. I know I am a Hawaitat. I know they are so-and-so. So, but what are you talking about? Who are the Arabs? So here are the British trying to drum up this Arab revolt, which is the, which has become now a mythological thing, the <laughs> Arab revolt to raise the Arab people or, or tribe, give them the arms and ammunition, bring them the idea of independence so that they ri will rise up and fight the Turks. That is the Ottoman Empire. I am out of time. I will tell you what they pay me, and you will tell me if this is a servant's wages. They pay me month by month 100 golden guineas. 150, Alda. Who told thee that? I have long ears and a long tongue between them. A hundred, a hundred and fifty, what matters? It's a trifle, a trifle, which they take from a great box they have. In Aqaba. In Aqaba? Where else? You trouble me like women. <laughs> Friends, we have been foolish. Aldo will not come to Aqaba. No. For money? No. For Faisal? No. Nor to drive away the Turks. He will come, because it is his pleasure. Thy mother mated with a scorpion. What would you do if you were elected about Aleppo? About? Aleppo. And what is Aleppo? You're kidding. No. Aleppo is in Syria. It's the, uh, it's the epicenter of the refugee crisis. Okay, got it. Got it. Okay. Well, with regard to Syria, um, I do think that it's a mess. How do you see this for Gary Johnson? He is relevant in as much as, in some polls, he's as high as 10%. Well, look, tragically, the Syria war, Aleppo, foreign policy in general, has not been a big part of this uh, U.S. presidential election. To be frank, they very rarely talk about foreign policy. This, I believe, is to the detriment of the United States and to the presidential race and to the people of the United States. Because you can see, as we have, that foreign policy tends to dominate most presidents' agenda, whether they want it or not, whether they campaign on foreign policy or not. It just is a fact of life. Salim, you're mentioning uh, how a, a nation is created, and I'm thinking about the demographics, specifically the age demographics in Syria, and how that may actually benefit anybody who wants to impose a national identity, because the age demographics in Syria 
point to a very young population. One third of the population is under the age of 14. So they're all children over there, more or less. Um, where, by comparison, for example, Canada, the age um, under 14 is 15%, while in Syria it's 33. So you have a lot of young people growing up in what they are being told is Syria. So isn't it possible then that they can actually have this national identity that they're born into and, and raised into and educated into? Yes, they can, and that is also part of historical process, uh, that if the national identity is taken up by the people and they adapt it, then, you know, it gets stronger over time. Mm-hmm. And as you're saying, the young people educated into that national identity then will become the foundation of the building of the Syrian state. But there's also problems, and, you know, history is not something static, you know, is constantly moving. And what is happening there, at least for the last um, 15 years since 9-11, is a state of war. States are fragile and collapsing, somehow being maintained. The states, that is the ruling authorities of state, whether they are capable of delivering the services to the people. I mean, you, you say the young people educated, but if the state cannot educate them, if the state doesn't have a central organization that can effectively give them a sense of who they are, then where does their sense of identity come from? So the sense of identity comes from the more immediate environment, which is the broken environment of the tribes and the sex, in you know, a traditional uh, thing. So state can either bring together the identity. Look at the Canadian state trying to bring together the identity of English Canada with immigrants coming in and so on, and we are trying to construct it with our institutions and so on. America is the case, you know, Europe. I talked about India. India is a very fascinating case. China is the other example. You know, the Chinese state went through great upheaval and now destabilized, and it is delivering the services to the people. Whether it is adequate or not adequate is another question, but whether it's health services, education, you know, the more fundamental sense, sense of security, law and order, uh, that ends anarchy. Now, in the Middle East, in Syria itself, that's where the state is breaking down. The people are basically trying to survive under a situation of intensive warfare. The state is under the control of a sectarian group, the Alawis. Syria itself is a patchwork of sectarian groups and tribalism. And so for the last so what was, what was 40, the- 50 years, it is the Alawis that have controlled it. Bashar Assad has been in power from 2000. His father, Hafiz Assad, or General Hafiz Assad, was in power from 1970. So from 1970 to now, it is one family that has been ruling Syria. For foreign policy of Canada, United States, um, the Western nations, uh, would it be a sound foreign policy based on the fluxing history of that region to just let them figure it out for themselves, even in a violent way? In other words, adopt a Gary Johnson type of foreign policy, i.e. Watson Aleppo. Wouldn't that be a a sound foreign policy, just like to stand back and and let let the dust settle? Well, it is more than Gary Johnson was in Aleppo. It is fundamentally the position of Donald Trump that you had 25 years of engagement in the Middle East by the Americans where the American leadership basically has no clue 
of what the problems of the Middle East are and how to bring about some sort of stability to that environment. They have spent, Americans have spent an enormous amount of money. I mean, in the debate... Am, I, correct, debate, am I wrong in assuming that America is actually creating instability in the area? Didn't, didn't they do that by, by you know, choosing against Assad? I, I, I was always surprised by that move. Well, again, you know, uh, 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 the question is you have to set up the time period that you're looking at. It's not a blanket statement. No, I understand. This region, which is now the hotspot of a conflict that can erupt into something even worse if if the Americans and the Russians get into a shooting war between them. But isn't the hope that they're going to get together on this one issue? The, the, the things are moving in a way. There are internal logics and people from outside trying to impose logic. Right. When empires make state, we talked about 1918, Mm -hmm. that's the external logic. The people themselves have their own logic. So uh, uh, this region was relatively stable during the Cold War years. This was a pretty stable region. Why it was stable? Because the states were allied either to the Soviet Union or to the United States. And each of the superpowers maintained their presence in the region through the support of the local state. So Syria was in alliance with Moscow for pretty much the duration of the Cold War. Similarly, Iraq was an ally of Moscow, that is Saddam Hussein. On the other hand, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt after 1970-71, Israel, Lebanon to some extent, these have been allies of the United States. So there was stability. Each side gave their own allies enough equipment, power, economic assistance, diplomatic support to keep those systems going. Well, something else. To keep happened. sort of a balance of power in balance the region. Balance of power, right. regional balance of that's, power. That's the opposite of what, I'm, what I was suggesting before as the one viable foreign policy of just hands off to the opposite, which is an empire type of foreign policy. Get in there and rule them because they are unruly by themselves. Well, it is not getting in there and ruling by themselves as I see it. What it is is the Soviet, Soviet Union collapse and a vacuum was created. States that were allied to the Soviet Union suddenly had no support coming from the outside, whereas states that were allied to United States felt, you know, that they had some advantage. Now, if you can put yourself in that frame of mind, the period 1990-1991, which is the collapse of the Soviet Union, to now, which is 2016, we're talking about 25 years. In this period, there has been wars. The first war was the Gulf War of 1991, where the United States, in support with Moscow, defeated Saddam Hussein or pushed Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. Syria supported that. Okay, let me, to make it very clear for you and for your listeners, there are two issues at stake over here, and I'm I'm simplifying it for the sake of time. Mm -hmm. The region was mapped in 1918 and after by Britain and France. And that region, as it was mapped, the states as it was created, the boundaries as it was set up, were then recognized by the United Nations because each of these states became member states of the United Nations. One of the principles 
of the United Nations and also of the local Arab League is that the boundaries of the state should not be tampered with. Because if you open up the boundaries of the state and temper it, it will be a Pandora's box. The same principle applies in Africa, though the boundaries of Africa runs not to the logic of the African tribes, the African Union, prior to that was the Organization of African Unity, they all agree in principle that you don't mess around with the boundaries of the state. Okay? The boundaries of the states are sacrosanct in that sense. Okay? But within the state, there are people who are jostling for power, who have other interests, who do not see the legitimacy of the ruling powers, for instance, in the case of Syria, it is a minority uh, sect uh, of, of, of the Alawis that have controlled the state. And so the others say, why should they control? There's not a democratic society. There's been no election uh, or, or elections are not given legitimacy. And they're saying, you know, we do not accept the minority. We want power for ourselves. That's the majority. And so there's an internal fight taking place between the people who are controlling the guns, who are the state authority and the population. Fast forward to 9-11 and afterwards. What happened in 9-11 and after? The Americans decided to go in for all sorts of reasons. We're not going to get in over here that we need a regime change in Iraq. And the Americans busted the Iraqi government of Saddam Hussein and removed him and then tried to impose or help establish a new regime. But that regime has not succeeded. Iraq is in a mess. Okay, So that was an intervention by the Americans under George Bush that has left behind a huge problem. Now, in the case of Syria, the question then emerges, do the Americans go in, do the other powers go in and decide for the Syrian people and impose a settlement? That's what you're calling an empire, mm -hmm. all right? There is another argument, which is the argument of the Russians today, which is the argument of the Syrian leadership today, which is the argument of the Chinese and many others, that, look, you cannot tamper with the boundaries of the state. What America is trying to do or what America is suggesting is that they are going to impose a settlement. That will not happen. We have to respect the boundaries of the state. We have to respect the regime, that is the Assad regime. They will have to solve their internal problem. And so the Russian position is we will support the regime, that is, we'll maintain the state. The American position is that no, that is the Obama position, Obama and Hillary position is that no, we should support those quote-unquote, freedom fighters or those, the Free Syrian Army, mm -hmm. the Jabhat al-Nusra, all these forces because they want democracy. They are opposed to the, uh, uh, the regime of Bashar Assad, who is basically a child killer, a molester, you know, and so on and so forth. And we want human rights. We want to settle this. And there are, these are the two contradictory arguments at play. How do you settle it? Well, Let's get back to politics. Trump is saying, we have no clue on this matter. We should not be involved in this matter. We should pull back. We should settle with Russia. Russia has interests over there. Okay, we have interests over there. We should work it out and let the players over there find a way to settle them. Our only interest is, if we have an interest, is we should destroy ISIS. ISIS, that is Islamic State, which is one of the fighters, one of the group fighting this, which is vicious. We have all seen mm. the pictures. We all know how vicious 
organization trying to rebuild the caliphate and is engaged in all sorts of human rights violation. But IS is basically what is Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia is America's number one ally. Yeah, what a and mess. And so that's uh, <laughs> where the contradiction comes in. I've been saying that as well, that if and whenever ISIS gains a nation to call its own, it will be indistinguishable from Saudi, Saudi Arabia. Arabia. Exactly. Some of you don't know, I am in fact, uh, I'm in fact the only Iranian comedian in the world, as to be said. The whole... Don't clap. That's actually three more than Germany. Thank you very much. I know, I know. Don't clap! Don't clap! I've got no time for clapping. In my culture, we do what's called the joke and the song concept. We like to tell a dodgy ethnic joke and then sing a golden oldie, you see? I'll give you an example. Okay, there was a shipwreck, lifeboat, middle of Pacific Ocean. There's an Arab, an Indian, an Iranian shark attack. Eat the Arab, eat the Iranian. Only Indian floating by himself. Shark come to him and swim off. And the Indian pray, oh God, why did you save me? And the shark says, I ate one of you lot last year and my arse is still burning. <laughs> Strangers in the night, exchanging glances. I'm glad you're laughing. Because most people associate the Middle East with oil and phlegm and halitosis. <laughs> no, I know. I know, I'm joking, I'm joking. We're running out of oil. Donald Trump is a jerk to everyone, but according to Barbara Boxer, he only interrupted Hillary because Hillary's a woman and he couldn't deal with the woman talking. By the time the debate was over, Trump had interrupted her 51 times, uh, where she inter interrupted him just 17 times. Does that read to you as a disrespect? Absolutely. It's a disrespect of women. I can tell you, I remember very well the first time I took office in a local office, I couldn't get three words out, Tamron, before my male colleagues jumped down my throat. It's something that they do. I don't even think they realize it. But I think Donald Trump did realize it. I think Donald Trump did really. Okay, this is the same stupid woman who said about a, a military member, can you call me, can you call me senator? He called her ma'am. And she said, can you call me senator? I earned that. Like, she's looking for sexism behind every tree. It's not sexist, by the way, for me to call her a stupid woman. She is a stupid woman. If she were a man, I would call her a stupid man. I call Donald Trump stupid all the time. But this is the way the left plays the game, is that if you say something about a woman that you would obviously say about a man, you must be a sexist. And that's why Hillary, the way Hillary tweeted it, was a, a man who insults a woman's weight can't be president. But apparently a woman who insults a woman's weight, she can, she can be president. By the way, women are much tougher on women than men are. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And thank you to all of our volunteer donors who have made it possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction and make us able to share every episode of Just Right with the entire world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to make a donation yourself. And while you're at it, be sure to investigate everything else that you might find on that site, including all of our social media contacts and every back episode of our show. Now, Salim, we were just talking about Donald Trump wanting to change the game in the Mideast. And you say that he is the president of peace, not the president of war. Is that true? Yes. I mean, if you follow the American media, the mainstream media, including the Canadian media, there is very little understanding about 
where Donald Trump stands on the issue, not only of the Middle East, but in the larger sense, that he is the peace candidate. He wants to pull back America. He says America first. In the case of Middle East, he's saying, you know, for 20 years, 25 years, we have been involved in the Middle East in endless war. Wars have not brought any result. There has been no conclusion, and there has been a huge amount of blood and treasures wasted on the part of America. In the last debate, he pointed out, $6 trillion has been spent on the Middle East over the last little while, that is during the Obama administration. And he said, with $6 trillion, we could have rebuilt America twice over. So what he's basically saying, that we should let the people of the Middle East decide how and what they want for themselves. Is that is that like what you talked about before, almost like a policy of containment of some sort? You took the words out of my mouth. Oh, sorry. Precisely. <laughs> precisely. That, that's, that's what it is. ISIS came about as a result of the situation in Syria. ISIS announced itself in 1914. If Obama was serious about destroying ISIS, they could you have destroyed You meant 2014. 2014, yeah. 2014. Yeah could have basically destroyed ISIS. They haven't done that. They only talked the talk. So the difference between Trump and the Obama administration, which is what Hillary Clinton represents, is that the Obama administration and Hillary has no plan. Trump's position is we should cut our losses, we should come back home, we should support the local actors, that is the states, with the collaboration and cooperation of Moscow and destroy ISIS. And after that, it should be their own, the Middle East should be their own problem. Would Putin go along with something like that? Do you think he would be cooperative with them? And then, of course, there's the situation in Europe with people like Angela Merkel, who have a completely different idea of immigration policy and and I don't know what her thinking is on open borders, but it seems to be in conflict with this plan. Yeah, I mean... Part of the Trump's position and, and the, the article that you mentioned, which I, we published mm-hmm. yeah. last year, just before the Canadian election, was that it is the responsibility of the Middle Eastern states, particularly the Persian Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Kuwait, the UAE, which have the financial wherewithal, the immensely rich states, to step forward and look after their Arab brothers who have been dislocated with the Syrian war or the Iraqi war. It is not the responsibility of the Europeans, nor of the Americans. That's exactly what Trump is saying. Trump is saying that we should help these states find a solution to the problem, take the refugees temporarily if they need it, till there is settlement in Syria, and then they can go back home. It is not for Europe or for America to absorb these refugees. That is the result of the war. Mm-hmm. So on the other hand, you have the Merkel position that you have pointed out or mentioned a name, and then you have the Obama administration, and now Justin Trudeau in Canada, who have been opening up their arms to bring in more of the Syrian refugees and others who are taking advantage of the Syrian conflict to head to Europe. If Hillary Clinton wins the election, what you suspect would be the foreign policy of a Clinton administration with regards to Syria and ISIS? The sense that we can make of Clinton's foreign policy or Hillary's foreign policy is that she will be driven by the same pressures that Obama has been, which is Saudi Arabia. 
These are the Sunni states in the region, and Obama has leaned in that direction to accommodate their interests and support them in helping or in bringing about a eventual end game in Syria, which will be the majority Sunni population in Syria will hold power. The confusing thing for the outsider is they do not know, they do not understand the differences between the Sunni and the Shia. Forget about the Alawis, forget about the others. Mm. There is a huge war taking place between the Sunni majority population and the Shia minority population. The Sunnis are represented, to repeat myself, by Turkey, by Saudi Arabia, by Egypt, because these are all Sunni Muslim states. Uh, and the Shia is represented by Iran, which is the majority Shia state, but non-Arab. Turkey is non-Arab. But it is the question of where the balance of power will be or who will dominate. At the present time, to make the situation even more confusing for you guys, Thank you. <laughs> uh, the major cities of the Middle East, the great historic cities of the Middle East, which were the centers of the Sunni Islamic civilization, are Damascus, which was the seat of the first caliphate in Islam, Baghdad, which was the seat of the Abbasid caliphate in Islam against Sunni, Aleppo, where a fight is now taking place, another major city of Sunni Islam. Beirut, which is the capital of Lebanon, another very famous city. And all of these major Arab cities now are under the control of the Shia population. The Iranians and their, and their allies and their supporters, which is the minority Muslim, they're controlling the major civilizational centers of the Middle East. And the Saudis and the Turks, they want it back. So that's the situation in the Middle East. Let's turn our attention now back to the situation here, uh, particularly in America. Good evening, America. I am going to be so good tonight. I am going to be so calm and so presidential that all of you watching are going to cream your jeans. Secretary Clinton, let's begin with you. Why are you a better choice than your opponent to create jobs and put money into the pockets of American workers? Well, Lester, my, my opponent's tax plan benefits the top 1% so much. It's not just trickle-down economics. It's, I don't know, I guess if I had to call it something off the top of the old dome with no prep whatsoever, I, I don't know, I, I guess I'd call it trumped-up trickle-down economics. <laughs> That's very catchy, Secretary. You, you just came up with that just now. I did, right off the stiff red cuff. Hey, jazz man, I've got a very presidential answer for this. Our jobs are fleeing this country. They're going to Mexico. They're going to China. I will stop that. If Hillary knew how, she would have done it already, period, end of story. I won the debate, I stayed calm, just like I promised, and it is over. Good night, Hofstra. Donald, Donald, there's still 88 minutes left. It's a 90-minute debate. My microphone is broken. 
She broke it with Obama. She and Obama stole my microphone. They took it to Kenya. They took my microphone to Kenya and they broke it and now it's broken. And you hear that? It's picking up somebody sniffing here. I think it's her sniffs. She's been sniffing all night. Testing, testing. Gina, Gina. Huge Gina. Secretary Clinton, what do you think about that? I think I'm going to be president. national security. Mr. Trump, you've criticized Secretary Clinton for voting for the Iraq war, but you yourself supported the war. Wrong, wrong, wrong. You're being very mean to me tonight, Coltrane. Very mean to me. I was against the war. Ask anyone in the world named Sean Hannity. I told Sean Hannity, call Sean Hannity. You told Sean Hannity on his show, and there's proof. No, I told him in private. It was just me and Sean, late at night, I leaned over and I whispered in his ear, Sean, I'm against the war in Iraq. And then he whispered in my ear, I'm against the war too. And the next thing I knew, I was kissing Sean Hannity. Moving right past that, the Iraq war is all about judgment. Secretary Clinton, do you think you have better judgment than Mr. Trump? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, of course I do. Donald Trump has terrible judgment. He makes bad decisions. He's spent his life cheating middle-class laborers. Laborers like my own human father who made, uh, I, I guess, drapes or uh, printed drapes or sold drapes or uh, some with drapes and he was relatable and I am also relatable. Mr. Trump, same question. Why is your judgment better than Secretary Clinton? Because it is. I have the best judgment and the best temperament. She's the one with the bad temperament. She's always screaming. She's constantly lying. Her hair is crazy. Her face is completely orange, except around the eyes where it's white. And when she stops talking, her mouth looks like a tiny little butthole. Secretary Clinton, you have two minutes to respond. Oh, uh, that's okay. He can have my two. And that, of course, was last weekend's Saturday Night Live clip featuring Alec Baldwin as Donald Trump. I thought it was fun to watch, Robert. I guess you didn't seem to like it as much. I thought I could do better. Um, <laughs> much, like okay. the, uh, much like the debate itself, they soft-pedaled on uh, Hillary Clinton. If I was to do that clip, if I was to do that you're, skit... You're taking it a bit seriously, then. <laughs> hey, we're talking about the next president of the okay. United States here. Well, right? We're talking Whoever about Saturday Night Live, too. But <laughs> if, I, if I was to have done that a little more fairly, I would have had a couple of CIA agents carry in Hillary Clinton <laughs> and prop her up uh, as a reference to her ailing health. I would have had the moderator put the questions on her lectern, but not on Trump's. You know, I would have had a joke about having um, an earpiece in her ear. And um, 
a teleprompter on her desk, uh, things which may or may not have happened, probably not a teleprompter. I think it was just a light on a lectern. But anyway, those kinds of things. And I would have asked, would have made jokes about um, the, the, the dead in in Benghazi and, and say, and perhaps have the moderator say, I'd like to ask you a tough question, Hillary, but I don't want to die. Oh, things yeah. like that. They just soft pedal a whole yeah. skit and they just made a fool out of uh, Trump. Well, quite deservedly, I think they did an excellent job. You saw, on you both saw of them. the debate, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Any thoughts? Because everybody well, seemed I to think I, Trump won the first I, third I, of it and then lost yeah, the last two thirds. I, I thought Alec Baldwin's hairpiece oh. was quite. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was talking about the real debate. <laughs> oh, the real debate. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, the real debate was was actually a fistfight, you might say, between Hillary Clinton and Lester Holt, who yes. was the moderator, but was in the same corner as Hillary Clinton, with Trump on the other corner just holding on to his own position, you know. The debate did not settle anything and is not supposed to settle anything. The Rasmussen poll, which I think one of the more reliable polls, was reporting that the election is so tight that it cannot be called which way it is going to go. Hillary, according to Rasmussen poll, has got 42 percent vote and Trump has 41 percent. So basically it is tied. So a week after the debate, with all the noise that has gone on uh, with the mainstream media going after uh, Trump, that this guy... Yeah, just doesn't know how to behave with women. And that's that's been the storyline of the last uh, one week after the debate. And yet, polling results shows that there is uh, basically Hillary Clinton still struggling to break away from Trump. The election is tied. And my reading of that is that, that the polling is showing the election is tied, 42-41, but the people who would be voting for Trump are not giving that indication to the pollster. And I would say that Trump is possibly leading by five, between anywhere between five and ten points. What did you think of the CNN poll just after the debate, which came out and, and I think it was the only major poll that gave Hillary the win over the debate, and yet they, they buried the fact way down in their stats that they interviewed for the poll, mostly Democrats. Exactly. CNN was the only poll in that immediately after the instant polling where Hillary uh, was declared the winner, whereas in the Drudge Report, I I went in and I looked at something like 10 instant polling that was done, CNBC, Drudge, Time Magazine poll, and they all showed Trump leading 60-40, 65 35 etc., People question the instant poll. Well, fair enough. I mean, that that is, you know, uh, people calling in as opposed to the more scientific poll. But in the scientific poll, if you want to go by the science of the pollsters, um, there has been no breakthrough. What I was found surprising this week was to hear Obama asking people not to vote for the third party candidate, which was obviously the Libertarian Party, the only party there that has managed to get on the ballot in every state. And Johnson has been making a bit of a name for himself in, in, that, in those terms. And they suggested that he's polling as high as 8%, although that might have dropped since then. That could have a tremendous effect on an outcome in an election that's that close. Well, I mean, there, what Obama is basically saying, and this is which shows the panic 
on the democratic side and the panic on the mainstream media side, which is all carrying the you know in, in tank for Hillary, is that the third party support is is what taken away from. Hillary, which is also the question about Bernie Sanders. That surprises people. me because I would have thought the opposite since the Libertarian Party, including Johnson, are really ex-Republicans and have much more in common with Republican voters than they would with Democratic well, voters, I would have thought. Gary Johnson is a very peculiar character, but his running mate, uh, Weld, mm-hmm. is a Massachusetts Republican, so-called. So the Massachusetts Republicans are like the Mitt Romney Republicans, rhinos. These are the never-Trumpers. These are the people, you know, who are far more comfortable sitting with their Democratic colleagues, this is the liberal establishment, than they are, would be with the hard hats who are voting for Trump, that they fly over country people. Yeah, we can't, we can't forget the fact that after Hillary's, um, at the Democratic National Convention, a lot of Democrats just uh, walked out of that convention when Hillary, you know, when Hillary won it because they were Bernie supporters and they really dislike Hillary Clinton. And where do these people go? They'll go to the Greens, they'll go to the Libertarians, or they'll stay home. Maybe that's why Obama is telling people, you know, don't don't do that. Precisely, because any any vote going to these people is draining away whatever is the Democratic vote, and that's the panic. I mean, the clip, Bob, uh, you must have heard Hillary talking about the Bernie supporter living in the basements of their parents. You mm-hmm. know, they are such desperate <laughs> people. Now that that is going to get these people even more irrit- irritated. So yeah, I mean, that's the play that is going on, but. Back to the debate, back to where the mainstream media is, they are all in for Hillary. This whole question of tax, which has come out now, you know, they're trying to hammer um, uh, Donald Trump with the illegal tax disclosure by the New York Times that you all might have picked up on this past week, that Trump in 1995 claimed a loss of close to 900 and some odd million dollars, which then he was able to write off for the next several years for not having to pay sure. tax. Well, this is part of the tax code, you know. You, of you, course. You put I've, I've, I've used it myself. A business loss carried forward is, is a great uh, way to keep your taxes down, if Pre- not eliminate. Precisely, and now we know that Hillary Clinton has done that, and New York Times itself has done that. Is all of what we've seen in the debate, it almost sounds like it's all calculated to be a distraction almost from the bigger issues that we were just discussing. Precisely. I mean, the, the more noise that they can create and distract the issue, then the focus is Trump having to deal with you know, the non-issue, whether it is tax, whether it is Alicia Machado, whether it's Rosie O'Donnell, whether, you know, he calls women fat and slob and piggy, as opposed to, which the main issue of the campaign is, and which is where Trump, I think, is not doing himself any good. And he has to be more disciplined and pivot back, which is the economy, which is the job, which is trade, uh, which is the immigration issue. In all of these issues, Trump has the lead over Hillary. Hillary has no policy. Hillary's policy is Obama's third term. You know, you had uh, an economy that is basically stagnant over the last several years. What do you think of the fact that the media are just basically covering up for Hillary? Because we don't hear anything about the emails that she destroyed, her security breaches, Benghazi, things of that nature. What do you think of that? 
absolutely. There is there's a total cover up. I mean, here in the 90 minute debate with uh, the last debate, which Lester Holt presumably monitored, uh, moderated, the issues that he raised were he began with the economy, then with trade and jobs, then he pivoted to race relations, and then focused on the birther issue. So there, there you see, that's what the 90 minutes went. And then Hillary comes in towards the end of the debate with Alicia Machado. There was no discussion of foreign policy. The top three issues, economy, trade, and race relations, that is the first part of the debate, Trump handled it exceedingly well. He was winning. But then when the debate pivoted towards the birther issue, Lester Holt, according to the people who have made uh, a study of the debate, made 41 interventions and questions on Trump and six interventions and questions on on, uh, Hillary. That's a ratio of one is to seven. The fact that Donald Trump is polling the way he is polling, given the fact that he's uh, fighting an uphill battle against the media, is, is remarkable. If the media was actually honest and reported objectively, and dealt with uh, Trump and Clinton in a fair manner, Trump would win in a, in a landslide. In, in my lifetime, and that means in your lifetime, uh, Robert and Bob, this is the first election where we, the people, are standing up against the entire establishment class. And the question is, for me, uh, on November the 8th, when we wait and see the result come in, will we, the people, prevail? We always, in the North America or in the advanced Western world, we talk about revolutions and we look at the third world, we look at Africa, Asia, revolution, bloody-minded, coups, counter-coups, war going on. Well, we never talk about revolutions in the advanced countries. What you're watching in America today and what happened in England with the Brexit is a revolution in an advanced constitutional democracy. That is, a revolution takes place when the people assert their own sovereignty and take back or want to take back the country on a constitutional basis, away from those who have been controlling and managing what we might define today as the custodial state or the nanny state. You know, Mm -hmm. the people are supposed to remain silent. They are supposed to simply receive what the custodial state or the nanny state offers them, gives them, whether it is climate change, whether it is, you know, NAFTA or what have you. And the people are silently supposed to accept it. For the first time, we are witnessing the pushback from the people. So this is it. This is revolution in an advanced democracy. And we'll continue our journey in the right direction next week. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be sure to join us again next week. See you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Okay, and now it's time to move on to the closing statements. Secretary Clinton, you're first. Listen, America, I get it. You hate me. You hate my voice and you hate my face. Well, here's a tip. If you never want to see my face again, elect me president, and I swear to God, I will lock myself in the Oval Office and not come out for four years. But if you don't elect me, I will continue to run for president until the day I die. And I will never die.
Mr. Trump, final remarks. You know what, Lester? I was going to say something extremely rough to Hillary tonight, but I said to myself, I can't do it. I just can't do it. But if I had said it, it would have been a nuclear bomb. Because in the 90s, our president was a man named Bill Clinton. Not many people know this, but that man is her husband. And in 1998, get this, he had an affair. It's true, my investigators are looking into it right now. It was a woman, was a woman named Monica, very heavy. I don't have her last name yet, but when I get it, I'm gonna set my alarm for 3.20 a.m. I go sit on my golden toilet bowl and tweet about it until completion. Oh my God.